So we are in the middle of chapter 34. Chapter 34, and remember, whichever class you join at, it doesn't matter. It's not like, oh, I'm coming at chapter 34, so then I won't be able to follow along. It's not like that. Each idea is huge, and it contains the rest of Torah in it, in its own way. So chapter 34 is a continuation of what we started in chapter 33. In chapter 33, we came to this place of realizing that there is nothing else besides for Hashem. And when that realization hits home, when we come to recognize how all the worlds are subsumed within Hashem, and there's no existence apart from Him, then Hashem becomes manifest within us. And He comes to live with us. And the Alter Rebbe said, think about the joy of a simple, common, lowly person that the king comes to move in with him. Our joy is so much greater because who's coming to live with us? Hashem. He's with us all the time. And that took us to such a high level of joy. Some of us were just ecstatic. We were feeling the ecstasy. Then 34 started and it kind of burst the bubble a little bit because the Alter Rebbe said, hey, there are people in history who have reached this realization, not just in a limited fashion, but in a total and utter fashion. So much so that they were called the Merkava, the chariot to the divine. These people are the patriarchs. These people are the prophets. When they realized that there was nothing else besides Hashem, their surrender was total and complete so that they lived with this realization on a constant basis in a total level, that their whole body was nothing other than an expression of the divine. And the ultimate was Moses, who when he experienced prophecy, he didn't even tremble. The Torah says about him, face to face he speaks to Hashem. He was so in tune to Hashem that he was a clear channel for the divine. The sages said about him, Shechina medaberes mitaych grene. The Shechina, the divine's presence, speaks out of his throat. We're not like that. We can't reach that level. And it's not because of a fault of our own. It's because we don't have the emotional, the intellectual, the spiritual capacity to reach the levels that they reached. However, there was a time in Jewish history when the entire Jewish people reached such a level. And that was at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. When Hashem gave us the Torah, we experienced the fact that there was nothing else besides Him. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu tells us in the Torah. You have been shown to know that God is God. There is nothing else besides him. Nothing else besides him doesn't just mean there's no other authority or force besides him. It means there's actually no other reality outside of him. So we came to that realization at the time of Matan Torah, and we experienced total and complete surrender. The issue with our surrender then was that, what does it mean? It meant the Jewish people died. They expired out of existence because their body was not a vessel to that level of surrender. So what did Hashem do? Hashem said right after that, you need to build a sanctuary for me. You cannot host me in that way where I'm purely channeled, just like the patriarchs and the prophets. There needs to be a space in this physical world where I am ultimately channeled, where I'm totally manifest. That's going to be in the sanctuary. And so the Jewish people built a sanctuary and Hashem was totally manifest there. We discussed last time the miracles and the Holy of Holies. And when people came to the Holy Temple, they experienced the divine. Well, we don't have a Holy Temple right now. It should be built speedily in our days. I mean, how do, does that mean? Because we don't have a Holy Temple now that we are lacking in creating an abode for Hashem down here. Because let's face it, we are not the patriarchs. We are not the prophets. And we have to remember that even though we are not the patriarchs, nor are we the prophets, we must still engage in the meditations of chapter 33. Because whatever we do get, we get. 
and it becomes a part of us and it becomes totally transformative. But we won't reach that level of total and utter surrender. And now that we have no temple, how are we going to do it? Does that mean we're lacking in our mission in life because we can't be the ultimate? And Alter says, no, that's not the case. Let's look at the words of our sages. Our sages taught us that from the time the temple was destroyed, Hashem has no place in this world except for the four cubits of halacha. That means that even though he doesn't live in the temple like he used to, even though he is not manifest in the holy temple as he was, where is he manifest? He is manifest in the four cubits of Jewish law. Wherever Jewish law is being studied, Hashem is totally manifest there, which is so mind-boggling. Think about the holy temple. Think about the holy of holies, the ark with the cherubs. Hashem was purely manifest there. Every time we study Jewish law, every time we study Torah, which is Hashem's will and wisdom, we are that. Could you imagine? Our limitations don't get in the way. It's not about us and our limitations. It's about Hashem manifesting himself through us. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. It's mind-boggling. We can't even wrap our minds around it, but we can just explode with joy. It's incredible. So that's what we learned last time, that through studying Jewish law, through studying Torah, which is Hashem's will and wisdom, we can actually become an abode for him in a pure way, in a way that's not compromised. Chapter 33 was wonderful, but there was the limitations of our own capacities. Over here, when we study Torah, we are not limited. It's Hashem coming to manifest as He is. It's just incredible. And that also brought us to an interesting discussion last time about Jewish law. That studying Jewish law is specifically what allows Hashem to shine through us. And the interesting discussion was, Jewish law, like, come on, you know, I'm like a universal person. I'm full of love. I'm global. Like the nitty gritty of law, how does that exactly manifest Hashem? It's exactly that. What is Jewish law? What is halacha? Halacha is the expression of Hashem's will and wisdom as it pertains to the physical world. Halacha allows us to, confis- to configure and align the physical reality with the deepest essence of being with Hashem. When Halacha mandates that this specific object be taken by this specific person at this specific time, it allows us to align the physical reality in such a way so that it is totally aligned with the divine will. And this reminds me of an amazing story of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who was known to be full of love, a very global person who was able to see past all barriers and loved every single Jewish person for who they were and taught that each and every Jewish person is more loved and cherished by Hashem than an only child born to his parents at an old age. You can imagine parents who already gave up on having kids and in their old age, their best blessed with an only child, how much love they have for that child. Hashem has more love for each and every Jewish person, no matter who, no matter how righteous or otherwise, Hashem loves him more than elderly parents love their only child born to them at an old age. So this is the Baal Shem Tov. Now, the year after his passing, on the anniversary of his passing, on his Hilula, on his yard site, his students gather together to recount the greatness of the Baal Shem Tov. And each of them was telling miracle stories that they were personally privy to of the Baal Shem Tov's greatness. And that night, one of the Baal Shem Tov students had a dream. And he said, you, my dear students, gather together to discuss my greatness. And in doing so, you spoke of great miracles that you were privy to. Let me tell you this, this you should know. That is not the expression of my greatness. My greatness is expressed in the fact of my awe of heaven, that I was meticulous in every last detail of Jewish law. And that story really strikes me because we think of the Baal Shem Tov, you know, a global person so full of love. Do the details matter? 
Absolutely the details matter. The details allow us to align this physical world in such a way so that it is totally configured to be an expression of pure divine will. And that's where we got up to last time, that a person who studies Torah at least twice a day, because some people are very limited and can only study a chapter in the morning and chapter at night, during those times when they are studying Torah, they merit to be Ushpezichan Legevura, a host to the Almighty. Just like Benjamin, the righteous, was called Ushpezichan Legevura, a host to the Almighty, because the Holy of Holies was in his territory. We become the Holy of Holies. We can host Hashem at least those twice a day, those two times every day. And now the altar is going to give us advice how we can extend this experience throughout the entire day. Because the experience of being in a boat for Hashem every day, all day long, that was last chapter, chapter 33. Once we get this idea that there's nothing else besides Hashem and we become cognizant of his imminent presence, he's always with us in our minds, in our hearts, in a way that he lives with us. But that was a limited experience. When we study Torah, it's a pure and true experience of Hashem being totally manifest, but it's limited in another fashion, time-wise, while we are studying Torah. But what about the other part, parts of the day? What about the rest of the day? So here the altar is going to give us advice how we can become an abode for Hashem even during the rest of the day. We're on page four, if you printed out the booklet in chapter 34. If you don't have the booklet, don't worry about it. You can just follow along by listening. If God grants him a greater abundance of time for Torah study, then he whose hands are poor will increase his efforts, meaning he should resolve that as more time becomes available to him, he will devote it to Torah study. So a person is limited. They only have a certain amount of time. They can study Torah twice a day for a limited amount of time. But what should a person do? A person should say, look, right now I'm limited, but I resolve honestly and firmly that if Hashem alleviates some of these problems that I have to deal with and I have more free time on my hands, I'm going to devote that time to Torah study. Now, Rabbi Steinzaltz points out that in the olden days, in the time that the Tanya was written, most people were strapped down by backbreaking labor in the home and in the fields. They really had no time. In today's day and age, he says, even people who hold down two jobs have a lot more time than people did in the olden days. And this reminds me of a story of my very close friend's grandmother. Hani is on, but her camera's not on. I'm going to call her Bubby Friedman. Bubby Friedman is the matriarch of a beautiful Chabad family. She's the mother of Rabbi Manus Friedman and of the famous singer Avraham Fried. But most importantly, she's Hani's grandmother. And Hani used to live in her house for some time. And while she was living there, she would also take care of work from home, besides for her office. And her grandmother noticed her on her phone. She didn't have a smartphone of her own, and she wondered what Hani was doing on that phone. So she said, I see her on that thing. What do you do already on there? And Hani said, let me show you my phone. I want to show you what I took care of in the last two hours. And she showed her the different business transactions she made just in the last two hours, a couple of social engagements. She said, isn't that amazing? In just two hours on this little device, what I was able to accomplish. Tell me, how is this different from the way you grew up? And she looked at her and she said, you know, when I was a kid, when I grew up, everything took so much time. Just to make a meal took forever. Just to do laundry took forever. Nowadays, people have so much more time on their hands, but I don't see what they're doing with all that extra time. And it reminds me of Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, quotes the German philosopher Schopenhauer, saying in a very, uh, how do we say, way, that mankind seems to be doomed to vacillate forever between periods of distress and periods of boredom. And Viktor Frankl said that the problems that we are seeing of boredom are more acute 
than those of distress. And he predicted that as more leisure time becomes available to the average work person, those problems will become more acute. But we don't have that problem because we know what to do with our extra free time. Our extra free time ultimately is to know Hashem. As the Rambam ends, Maimonides, and his entire work of halacha, that at that time, the era of Mashiach, the era when Hashem will be revealed, the whole occupation of the entire world would be nothing else than to know Hashem. So we make this resolution. Look, I don't have that much free time. I wish I had more because if I had more, I would be using that in order to study Torah. And the Alter Rebbe says like this, Moreover, God reckons a good intention as an actual deed. So the Talmud tells us if somebody resolves to do something good, but then by circumstances beyond his control was prevented, Hashem credits him as though he actually did it. So we only have a limited time to be a host for the Almighty. But we make a firm resolve. We say, Hashem, if you give me more time, I will spend that time studying Torah. Just that resolve allows us to be Ushbazichan Legavura, a host for the Almighty. Now, of course, it's not exactly the same thing because when a person is actually studying Torah, Hashem is as if speaking through their mouth. Like the Navi Yeshaya says, Udvarai asher samti beficha, and my words which I have placed in your mouth. When we speak words of Torah, Hashem is speaking through us. And besides, the Midrash tells us in Tana Devei Eliyahu that every Torah student that is sitting and studying Torah, Hashem reads opposite him. Could you imagine such an experience? that You are studying Torah. Hashem is reading and studying opposite you. And that happens specifically through actual Torah study. By the good thought, we get the credit for it. So it is a simulated experience, but it is not exactly the same experience. Speaking about a good thought, what our intentions are, right? So we said that when a person resolves firmly that they're going to study a halacha, that they're going to study Torah, if they have more free time, it doesn't just, of course, there's here what the Alter Rebbe is saying is that you resolve firmly, then you, Hashem counts it for you, you get the credit as though, you are actually studying Torah. But there's something else about making this firm resolve. It's about your dreams and aspirations. When you're dreaming of something, that becomes who you are. The previous Rebbe recounts that when he was a young boy, he was once staring out the window. And his tutor, the famous Rav Shmuel Betzalel, known as the Rashbats, called him over and said, Yasef Yitzchak, I want to tell you something. I noticed that you were raptly looking outside. It is much better to be on the outside looking in than on the inside looking out. And this is expressed by a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Wherever a person's thoughts are, that's where he is. So if you're busy with like mundane issues that you have to take care of, but you're dreaming of Torah study, that becomes your personality. That becomes who you are. You are where your thoughts are. You're dreaming of a time when you can spend time studying even more Torah. It becomes part of your essence and your character. So here the Alter says like this, you have a limited time, you'll study Torah, and for the rest of the time when you can't be studying Torah, you'll resolve that if you have more free time, you will use that for Torah study. And Hashem counts your resolve as if you were actually studying. And now you get to host the Almighty, not just twice a day, but actually the entire day. And now he's going to give us further advice. Okay, so therefore, even while his time for Torah study is limited to a small part of the day and night, he is regarded as if he had studied the entire day, since he would have devoted all this time to Torah study had it been available. By virtue of his good intention, he thus is, in a sense, in a boat for godliness, not only during the time actually spent in Torah study, but also throughout the day. And now the Altar is given, and now the Altar Rebbe will give us another piece of advice how we can become a host for Hashem and a boat for him throughout the entire day.
וגם שאור היים כולי, שעסק במסה ומתן, יהיה מחיין לשבתא יסברך. Even during the remainder of the day, when he is engaged in business, he will be in abode for God. בנסינס הצדקה שייתן מיגיעי, by giving charity out of the proceeds of his labor. So all day long you're working, and by giving some of that money that you earn to tzedakah, The whole day becomes a preparation for you being able to give tzedakah. You can't give tzedakah if you can't work, right? So if you're working and you're earning money, when you give a percentage of that to tzedakah, all day long you become an abode for Hashem. Jewish law dictates that a person should give 10% of their earnings to tzedakah. The Talmud tells us, Hamevazvez al yevazvez yaisem rechaymesh. Somebody who dispenses freely of his money to charity should not dispense more than 20%, which is a fifth. So that's a generous person gives 20%. The Alter Rebbe later on in Tanik gives advice on how a person can give even more than that. <laughs> But 20% is the generous person. And this person, when he gives 20% of tzedakah, 20% of his earnings to tzedakah, while he's earning not just that money, But all of his money, the 100% of his money, all day long, he is in a boat for Hashem. And the Alter Rebbe is going to explain how this is. Now, before he explains how this is, he explains why it is that it is specifically charity that makes us in a boat for Hashem. He didn't say this about every other mitzvah. Remember, what was singled out from our, all of our experience? It was Torah study. Torah study was singled out because when a person studies Torah, Hashem's will and wisdom literally shines within their mind and they become an actual host for Hashem. Hashem is li- literally shining through them. That was in contrast to mitzvah performance. While a mitzvah is Hashem's will, a person fulfills his will by doing a mitzvah, but he doesn't become an abode for him. By fulfilling a mitzvah. It was specifically Torah study that made us in a boat for Hashem. And now the Alter Rebbe is singling out the mitzvah of tzedakah. That through this mitzvah, a person becomes in a boat for him. And now he will explain why. Shehi mimi daisav shel hakadish baruchu. Mahu racham v'chulay uchamay shekasav batikunim chesed draya yamina. Charity is one of God's attributes, which we are enjoined to emulate. As our sages say, as he is compassionate, so must you be. And as it is written in Tikkun Zohar, kindness is the right arm of God, so to speak. And therefore, human kindness constitutes an abode for the divine attribute of kindness. So what makes tzedakah different than every other mitzvah is not just that it is a mitzvah. It is actually the attribute of Hashem. The Talmud tells us that we have to be like him. So in the Jerusalem Talmud says, just like he is compassionate, so too you should be compassionate. The same thing in the Babylonian Talmud, it quotes from the song that Moshe sang with the Jewish people when they crossed, when they crossed the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds. They said, this is my God and I will create an abode for him. If you look at the word anvehu, and we looked at this previously in a different teaching, the anvehu, and I will create an abode for him, can also be seen as a contraction of the word ani vahu, I and he. How do we get to be like him? And the Talmud tells us, mahu racham, af racham, just as he is compassionate, so too should you be compassionate. So it's not just about doing a mitzvah and fulfilling his will. There's something deeper here. It is the attribute of Hashem. The Tikkun the, the tikune Zohar writes, Chesed Draya Yamina. Kindness is his right arm. And while it says too, Gvura Draya Smala, severity is his left arm, the Alter Rebbe points out later on in Tanya that the right signifies the mainstay of the body. The entire body depends on the right. And therefore, kindness is actually Hashem's, as it were, main attribute. If you want to be like Hashem, be kind. So when a person is being kind, they are becoming in a boat for Hashem because they are allowing Hashem's attribute to shine through them. And that's what tzedakah is. You're working hard all day. You're making a living. Great. During that time that you're making a living, 
you are preparing for a mitzvah. You are enabling a mitzvah because you're earning money. You will be able to be kind with that. You will be able to emulate Hashem with that. And so all day long, you become an abode for him. Now, you don't give all your money to tzedakah. You give like 10 or 20%. So let's say you give 20% to tzedakah. If you're not giving 100% to tzedakah, you're giving 20% to tzedakah. How does that make you an abode for Hashem all day? It should be 20% of the time while you're earning that 20% or however long it takes you to earn that 20%, you are in a boat for him. And then the rest of the time you're not. And yet the altar of is saying that the whole day when you're working to earn your 100% of your living, you are in a boat for him. How is that? So the altar is going to explain this now. Even though one distributes as charity, no more than one-fifth of his earnings, the maximum requirement for charity, how then is he an abode for godliness while he is engaged in earning the other four-fifths? Yet that fifth elevates with it all the other four parts to God so that they too become an abode for him. And this is a really interesting concept that when a person gives the one-fifth to Dakar, it elevates the rest of his money. Let's look at a story previously in Torah, the story of Joseph, okay? So Joseph was the viceroy in Egypt. He was the second to the king. He was in charge of distributing the food, selling the food, planning on how to sell the food during the time of the famine. And the famine became so severe in Egypt that it came to a point where the people had nothing left. They already gave away all their money. They already gave away all their animals. All they had left was themselves and the land. And they came to Joseph and they said, look, we'll be slaves. We'll be slaves to Paro. We, we can't die. And so Joseph accepted their proposition and he gave them back the land, even though it belonged to Paro. He gave them seed. He said, here is seed, plant the land. Four fifths you'll keep to yourself and one fifth, 20%, you will give to Paro. That was their new arrangement. And these are the words that he used. And you shall give a fifth to Paro and the remaining four parts shall be yours. Now, Let's look at the word paro and understand what paro means. And then we can read this verse again in light of how Kabbalah explains it. Okay, so we have this word paro in another context in the Torah, and it's not to speak about paro. This is the story of the Chet HaEgel, the golden calf, where the Jewish people, after the receiving of the Torah, did this terrible sin, and they served a golden calf. Now, part of this whole story was Aaron was building the altar, hoping to stall for time so that Moshe can get back in time and they will not be doing this sin. But meanwhile, the Torah tells us like this, And Moshe saw that the people were exposed, meaning that their disgrace had been exposed. The word is parua, exposed. Because Aaron had pra'ai, the same word as paro. Aaron had exposed, revealed them. So the word paro, if you read it differently, means expose, reveal. Let's look at this verse again, the verse of Joseph telling the people to give one-fifth to paro and the other four-fifths will be for themselves. And you will give a fifth, that's 20%. Lifaro, by doing that, you become the aspect of revelation. By giving just a fifth, you become the aspect of manifestation of the Ein Sof Baruch Hu. We're looking at Paro. We don't realize that Paro also means revelation. And when a person gives just this 20%, they cause divine manifestation on the rest of their earnings too. Now, where does this come from? How do we get it that 20% elevates the rest of the money to charity? So the Alter Rebbe now is going to bring a comparison that our sages bring. In a well-known statement, our sages have declared that the mitzvah of charity is equivalent to offering all the sacrifices. So our sages compared 
Charity to sacrifices. By understanding the effect of sacrifices, we can understand the effect of charity, of tzedakah. Now, in the case of sacrifices, all living creatures were elevated to God through the offering of one animal, all plants through the meal offering, which consisted of merely one-tenth of a measure of fine meal mixed with oil and so on. Similarly, all one's earnings are elevated when he gives one-fifth to charity. So if you look at the Kabbalistic work of the Arizal in Tameha Mitzvah, he explains that every time a sacrifice was brought in the temple, it elevated everything else with it. There are four kingdoms. There's the inanimate kingdom, the vegetative kingdom, the animal kingdom, the human kingdom. And actually, then there's the soul. So let's say there's five dimensions. Every time a sacrifice was brought in the temple, there was salt. Then there were sacrifices with oil, with flour. There was the actual animal. There was the person verbalizing confession. And there was the intent of the Kohen, which represented the soul. The Arizal explains that by bringing the one animal as a sacrifices, not just that animal was elevated, but all the animals in the world experienced some level of elevation and refinement. The utter and total refinement was the actual animal of sacrifice. The other animals didn't have the exact same level of elevation, and proof of that is another one would be brought up the next day or even that afternoon or that very day. They still needed to be sacrificed. But a certain level of elevation, when an animal was brought as a sacrifice, it elevated all the animals. So the same thing, when a person gives 20% to charity, that 20% becomes holy. But not only is it elevated, the rest of the money is elevated as well. Our sages compared charity to sacrifices and it's the same effect. When you give that 20% to tzedakah, everything else is elevated as well. And this struck me for an example from the physical world, which is not exactly this idea, but the similarity of it just is just very interesting that I have to share it. I don't know how many people heard of Pareto's principle. Vilfredo Pareto was a, an economist and a philosopher in Italy. And he noticed something very interesting. Legend has it that one day he was looking at his pea garden and noticed that 80% of the peas were produced by just 20% of his plants. And the more he thought about it, he looked around for examples of that. And he saw that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by just 20% of the people. There's a lady who wrote a book called From Frazzled to Focus. Her name is Rivka Caroline. Great book. I recommend it. And she says, look at your closet. You wear 80% of the time, you're wearing just 20% of your clothes. If you look at businesses, 20% of the companies in any one given industry are what produce 80% of the product. So this 20% that you think is not so significant because it's a minority of the amount, that's what's generating 80% of your profit. And I was thinking it's not exactly the same thing, but look at it. If we look at tzedakah, this 20%, everything else is coming really from that 20%. It's not 20 plus 80 equals 100. It's different. It's 20 is generating 80 But it's this idea, you can't underestimate the value of this 20%, which is the most significant portion of your income. This 20% that you now are able to give to tzedakah is now generating profits beyond what you can imagine. It's generating holiness throughout the rest of your income and your livelihood as well. So here we have it. We, We talked about bringing Hashem into us, becoming a host for the Almighty throughout the rest of the day, not just when we study Torah, but throughout the rest of the day, how are we going to host the Almighty? So one piece of advice the Altar Rebbe gave us was resolve that if you have more free time, you will use that for Torah study. And that thought counts as an actual deed. You get the credit for that. So even though it's not exactly the same experience, it's something of that experience. and You become a host for Hashem all day. And then he said, Even when you're engaged in business, you can become an abode for him all day long. Because when you give 
20% to charity, it elevates the rest of your money. Just like sacrifices elevate the rest of the world with it, that 20% elevates the rest of your money. Now, he says like this, apart from this, as explained below, all that one has eaten and drunk and generally enjoyed for his bodily health from the other four-fifths of his earning is elevated toward God during his Torah study and prayer. Thus, even the time spent on earning those profits which he does not distribute to charity also becomes an abode for godliness through Torah study and prayer. So a person donates 20% to tzedakah, 80% they can't kept for themselves. The 20% that was elevated to tzedakah is like the animal that was brought on the altar. Total consumption by Hashem. Totally elevated. Totally elevated to Hashem. The rest of the money is like the rest of the world that has been now elevated and refined and is more easily elevated now that it has gone through that level of elevation. So the other 80% that we have for ourselves is refined. And when we use that for our own bodily health and we eat and we drink and we do whatever we need to do to keep ourselves healthy and with that energy we serve Hashem, now an even greater elevation is happening with the other 80%. And now we reach the culmination of all the chapters that we began from chapter 26. So in order to understand the upcoming words of the Alter Rebbe, let's do a brief review. Let's remember that starting from chapter 26, the Alter Rebbe began the subject of joy. He taught us that in order to be on top of your game, you must be happy. Happiness is not optional. It is mandatory. You have to be happy. He said that if you look at wrestlers, even if one of them is stronger, but if he's lazy and sluggish and depressed, he's going to be easily toppled. The divine soul will win if we're happy. If we look at it carefully, we realize the divine soul is stronger. But if we're not happy, then we can fall to laziness. We can easily stumble to temptation because we're trying to get that quick, that quick fix me, that pick me up. So happiness is a must. And because it's a must, the Alter Rebbe gave us a lot of advice on how to deal with all kinds of sadness, physical and spiritual, so that we can sidestep it and be happy all the time. Now, in chapters 29 and 30, we went on a little detour and we looked at crushing. We looked at kind of subduing ourselves and our animal soul feeling as if distant and of inferior, if we can say, lowly, coming to a humble spirit. And then chapter 31 continued the theme saying, despite the sadness, despite knowing your failings and your distance from Hashem, you can still be happy by freeing the divine soul and uniting the divine soul with Hashem. There's no greater joy than uniting the divine soul with Hashem and and by elevating our animal soul, we fulfill the purpose of creation. Chapter 32 spoke about Ahavas Yisrael, of a fellow Jew. Chapter 33, we realized the incredible joy of becoming an abode for Hashem by being cognizant of his imminent presence. And in this chapter, in chapter 34, we looked at becoming a host for him and taking joy for the fact that Hashem literally shines through us just like he does in the Holy Temple. So all these are different forms of joy, except for the ideas in chapters 29 and 30, being brokenhearted, being of a crushed and lowly spirit. So we have these two motions. Most of the time we were talking about joy. We did talk about being crushed, being lowly and despised in our own eyes on the account of the animal soul. The Altarab is now going to bring this all to a head and tell us like this. And I'm going to read their introduction and then I'll move into it. From the end of chapter 30 up to this point, the Altarab discussed various forms of joy which one ought to strive to attain when saddened over his spiritual shortcomings. The joy of one's soul on its being released from exile within one's body and animal soul. The joy of being close to God through awareness of his unity. 
the joy occasioned by contemplating God's joy in the crushing of the Sitra Akhara and so on. The Altarba now goes on to state that all these forms of joy do not conflict with the bitter remorse and sadness that one experiences over one's spiritual failings. For although joy and sadness are opposites, they can nonetheless coexist when each has its own distinct cause. Behine. All the specific types of joy enumerated above do not preclude one from being shamed and despised in his own eyes or from having a broken heart and a humble spirit even at the very time of his joy. So when we got to chapter 31 and we were looking at the joy of the soul, at being released from captivity, it wasn't about minimizing the sadness and the, medita- and the meditations of the previous chapter. We said, no, no, no. Everything that I said until now, how distant, how lowly, it's all true. But that's only one part of the picture. I have within me a divine soul that can be utterly connected to Hashem and freed from captivity every time I study Torah and every time I engage in misrepresentation performance. So we have these two movements at the very same time, brokenheartedness, feeling lowly and despised in one's own eyes, and then unbounded joy, infinite joy, and being totally connected to Hashem. The Alter Rebbe says, you can have both at the very same time. They don't contradict each other. They're opposite feelings. What do you mean they don't contradict each other? They come from very different reasons and from very different places. In fact, in a Hasidic discourse, the Altarebbe explains the words of our sages in the Talmud. Looking at the words of Shema, the Shema tells us, Love Hashem with all levavcha, your heart. Why don't you say libcha? your heart with one base. The Torah uses two bases. And the Talmud explains, you have to love him, with both your inclinations. Love him with your good inclination. Love him with your evil inclination. And there are many ways to understand this. And the Altar says, that God is one, should shine in both ventricles of your heart, representing both inclinations. When it shines in the left ventricle, the seat of the animal soul, then a person feels sad for his distance from Hashem and for being sunk in materialism. And when it shines in the right ventricle, the seat of the divine soul, a person feels joy of a mitzvah, feels joy of connectedness to him. A person can have both of these feelings at the very same time because they stem from two opposite reasons, two very different reasons. In fact, I was trying to find the source of this, and I think I heard it in a shir, that's why I couldn't find it online. There was a chassid who was describing his meeting the Rebbe while he was still the previous Rebbe's son-in-law in Paris. Most people didn't know him. You know, he was in university. They didn't know what kind of person he was. And he was describing the eminent character of the Rebbe. And he said, he is a broken joyful Jew. What? Is he broken or is he joyful? He's both. We have to realize why we're joyful. It's not the joyfulness of self-satisfaction. I'm so happy with myself. I'm so happy where I am in life. I'm so happy with what I accomplished, what I achieved. No, you know I am so happy? I am so happy because I have the privilege to be totally connected with Hashem. I have the privilege to totally manifest Him. I have a divine soul. I can literally be a channel for the infinite. Broken? Why are we broken? Broken because a chassid is broken because he doesn't feel satisfied where he is. He's always longing for more. He realizes his shortcomings and he wants to be ever closer to Hashem. So there's both of these motions at the very same time. There's the joy at being privileged to have a divine soul and connected with Hashem in that way and being able to manifest his energy in the world. And there's brokenness and not being satisfied at realizing our shortcomings, realizing our distance and yearning for more. And this, is it, this, this idea is expressed in the words of the Zohar. One second, let me just backtrack and read like this. Me'achar ki hayaysay nivzev v'chulay 
For the shame and so on is prompted by one's awareness of the lowliness of his body and animal soul. So that's where the shame, the lowliness is coming from. The animal soul feeling distant, feeling broken for being so far away from Hashem. While his joy is felt on the account of his divine soul and the animating spark of godliness clothed within it as mentioned above in chapter 31. In chapter 31, the joy was coming from realizing that every time we engage in Torah study and every time we engage in mitzvah performance, we are literally freeing our soul from captivity. We weren't minimizing our previous meditations. We weren't saying they weren't true. We were saying they were so true. And because it's such a deep and dark exile for our, animal, for our divine soul, how joyful are we every single time we get to release our soul from captivity? And furthermore, every time we use our body in order to do a mitzvah, every time we use the physical world in order to do a mitzvah, we are actually elevating our animal soul. We are actually elevating our body and refining the world. And that is our purpose for creation. And what a joy there is in fulfilling the purpose of creation. Now, the author brings these words from the Zohar that express this idea. Uchahai gavna isa bazaihar. Bechia tekia belibai misitra da. Vechedva tekia belibai misitra da. We find a similar statement in the Zohar. Weeping is lodged in one side of my heart and joy is lodged in the other. Rabbi Elazar exclaimed these words upon hearing from his father, Rabbi Shimon, an esoteric exposition on the destruction of the temple. His father, Rabbi Shimon, is the famous Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the author of the Zohar. These two were together in a cave hiding from the Roman for 13 years. On one hand, he now felt even more keenly the enormity of the tragedy. On the other hand, he was filled with joy over the secrets of Torah being revealed to him. So when his father, the holy Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, was teaching him these esoteric teachings about the destruction of the holy temple, as tragic as the tragedy was, it was now even more tragic. He understood the depth of the tragedy even more, and he felt so pained and so broken. At the same time, he was studying these deep secrets, and because he was privy to these deep secrets, he felt so much joy, an incredible amount of joy. So he said like this, weeping is lodged in my heart from one side, and Joy is lodged in my heart from the other side at the very same time. They tell a story of a chassid, Reb Pesach Molestavka. He was a chassid of the Mittler Rebbe of the Tzemach Tzedek. This is a story that's hard to imagine. You have to be a certain caliber of person that when he would read these words from the Tanya, one eye would be streaming tears and the other eye would be sparkling with joy. Now, for most of us, this is very, very difficult. <laughs> in fact, in having these two motions, one after another, truly being brokenhearted and truly being joyful, the Rebbe explains in a talk that for somebody who is a real Benoni, free of sin, this is possible. But for a person who has sin, they have to set, set aside a small amount of time to think about their distance and to have a broken heart. And for the rest of the time, for the majority of the time, they really have to be an emotion of joy. We thus see from the Zohar that two opposite emotions stemming from separate causes can exist in one's heart side by side. So here we see a foundation in serving Hashem that joyfulness and brokenheartedness are not a contradiction. In fact, they could exist in the same person at the same time, and they should. So with all the joy that we learned about, this doesn't take away from us feeling humble and lowly. And that's the perfect expression of the divine. And Judaism is full of paradox because ultimately it comes from a oneness that we're going to get to that we'll understand one day. But in the meantime, they look contradictory. So here we finish chapter 34 and I'm going to do a quick chapter summary. When it came to our forefathers and the prophets, the nullification to Hashem's unity dwelled within them always and pervaded their physical being. The Jewish people experienced something of this at the time of the giving of the Torah, at which time they nullified an existence quite literally, 
But since they were not vessels for this type of nullification, their souls took flight and they were, so they were immediately commanded to build a sanctuary because they could not handle that level of nullification. And in the sanctuary, the divine truth would shine. After the destruction of the base Hamikdash, the holy temple, this idea of Hashem's true unity shining in the physical world is affected through the study of halacha. When a person studies Torah, which is Hashem's will and wisdom, Hashem is literally manifest, shining through that person. But this being the case, we should never despair for the fact that we cannot reach even an iota of what our forefathers and the patriarchs reached. Rather, we should fix times to study Torah, morning and evening, according to what we are capable of. And we should rejoice that we have the privilege of hosting the Almighty at least twice a day. Now, when a person resolves that he's that if he will have the opportunity, he will literally study Torah day and night, he is credited as though he actually did so. And then it is as if Hashem is manifest with him literally at every moment. Also, when we act with Hashem's attribute of kindness and give 20% to tzedakah, the tzedakah raises even the other four-fifths, the other 80% of our earnings as well. And in this way, we become an abode for Hashem all day, even while we're earning the other 80%. Also, when we use those four-fifths for that which is necessary for our physical health, and with that energy, we study Torah, we pray, we serve Hashem, these four-fifths too are elevated to Hashem. Now, even when a person is joyful with genuine happiness, it does not prevent us from being brokenhearted and of a lowly spirit at the very same time. Because each of these contrasting feelings stem from utterly different things. Lowliness on the account of our animal soul and joy because of our divine soul that attaches to Hashem. So that's it for chapter 34. Next week, please God, we, we will study a new subject. And that's going to be in chapter 35. We're going to study what it means, physical action, why physical action is actually that important. Because we're spiritual people. Why does the physical things that we do hold such weight? We'll study that next week. I'm going to look at the chat now. And if you have something to say, you could just please unmute yourself because I can't unmute you.